Hi there and welcome to another episode of the Osler Podcast. My name's Todd Fraser and in this podcast series we interview leading clinicians, characters and troublemakers who are changing the face of clinical healthcare. On today's podcast I'll be chatting to Albertina Pohl and Stefan Butucha. Albertina is a researcher and critical care nurse at Melbourne's Alfred Hospital and Stefan is a nurse and researcher for the Centre for Quality and Safety Research at Deakin University in Geelong. They join me today to talk about a recent paper that they published in Australian Critical Care addressing the very important issue of violence and aggression in the ICU. Welcome both. Thank you very much for having us, Todd. Thank you. Albertina, can I start with you? How big a problem is the issue of violence and aggression for ICU staff? Um, That's a very good question, Todd. Um, This is actually incredibly difficult to determine um, exactly how big this problem is, um, as it actually hasn't been researched to the same extent as it has in other areas, such as um, the emergency department or psychiatric settings. Um, And this became evident when I started looking into the issue. Um, There was a lack of research into the area um, of in the ICU setting uh, and in particular uh, whether NEAT was a contribution to this as well. So the interest emanated from my own experience of occupational violence in ICU. Is there a sense that the problem's getting worse or is uh, is behaviour changing, do you think? Um, Well, that's difficult for me to know for sure um, as I only did a retrospective study over a 24-month period, but what I would have liked to have done is look at a longer period, but obviously it's um, in a study, there's only a selected amount of time that you can look at, so, um, but in my time, I can say yes, that there was an increase in violence over that period. So prior to doing this study, what do we know about the problem? What are the sorts of triggers that result in this sort of behaviour and violence against healthcare staff? Um, Well, some of the triggers that I found in my study, uh, so there's different types of triggers, so potentially like the emission diagnosis, uh, previous behaviour or others, such as patients wanting to leave, uh, like smoking, smoking, um, absconding, withdrawal from alcohol, drug induced psychosis, and those types of triggers. Um, but otherwise, um, admissions to ICU with the the highest admissions where we looked at were patients with drug overdoses, patients with isolated head injuries, uh, and patients following a cardiac arrest were seemed to uh, have the highest rate of this type of behaviour. When these sorts of um, events happen to staff, what sort of impact does it have on them? Um, not based on my research itself, um, because that's not something I looked into, but from the literature, um, the impacts on healthcare professionals can be quite significant. Um, so some of the potential effects of um, these types of um, occupational violence included insomnia, increased or decreased appetite, alcohol uh, or drug use, uh, nightmares, social withdrawal, um, but also the number of incidences um, and the exposure um, could have a compounding effect. 
So the exact impact on um, violence can be difficult to determine, but in the short and long-term consequences can include emotional, social and cognitive costs. And I think if I can add a little bit, I think there's a there's a lot of there's a big focus now on compassion fatigue, and I think mm. there's some link between some links between um, occupational being subject of occupational violence, and and uh, being more prone to to going into compassion fatigue, and then that can go into burnout and trauma trauma uh, secondary trauma stress. How common is this? I mean, you're both practicing clinicians or have been in the past. Is this the sort of thing that's happened to you and to your colleagues, or is this a, a less common event than that? It's a, that's quite a, a difficult question. I mean, it's it, I think any healthcare worker, especially if you're working in the emergency department or to a certain extent in, in ICU or even you know on wards, you have been exposed to to violence. Just being uh, sometimes just verbal, uh, you know, verbal violence and and things like verbal aggression, uh, things people that are a, a little bit confused due to their diagnosis, due to some some of the treatment, um, and a lot of the time it's something that is not reported because we don't see the there's no immediate impact. If somebody calls your name, there's no immediate impact, uh, but you know, repeated, repeated. Um, when it's repeated time after time, then it can become a little bit depressing, mm-hmm. and then you, you go into your your compassion fatigue, the, the stress, trauma, the burnout, and all, all this. So I think it's it is something that I would say most, and in in the studies, most healthcare workers have been subjected to, uh, but there is a lot of underreporting, so it's very difficult to actually quantify it. It's interesting. You mentioned the the verbal abuse is one component of this. What are the sorts of things that you're talking about in this study? What what uh, in what guise does uh, violence portray itself? Um, well, the types of violence that that we looked at, uh, and in particular for this unit, was so as Stefan mentioned. Uh, already mentioned was the the verbal violence, um, the physical violence. Uh, the risk of harm to oneself, um, say if they were um, with a drug-induced psychosis or a risk of harm to others. Stefan, uh, we talked a little earlier about some of the triggers for this sort of behaviour and I understand that in the paper that was published you mentioned uh, that the national emergency access target may be a contributing factor. Can you tell us why there might be a link in your, in your opinion? Yeah, so the, you know the, the whole premise of the study was to there was this anecdotal or the perception that there has been there was an increase in in violence in the unit we uh, we where we conducted the study since this national emergency access target came in. Um, uh, most of you, most people will know that the the NEET or National Emergency Access Target is uh, originated really from from the UK, uh, looking at making sure patients, it was to improve patient outcomes originally, mm-hmm. making sure patients would be seen, treated, admitted or discharged in, in ED uh, within four hours of arrival. Uh, and it was shown, you know, that there was some evidence base behind it uh, saying that around 98% of people uh, would be would receive adequate treatment in this time and, would, and then it will improve their, the quality of the experience, it will improve the outcome by not staying in, in ED for a long time. Uh, um, but it's it also has um, so in um, in the UK the, the target was quite a hard target and measured uh, really um, originally ninety eight percent needed to get through that and it's actually led to 
a lot of different mechanism to 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 manage this patient, uh, and some of this was to to maybe identify beds a bit earlier and to to not uh, treat, um, you know, to to. There's this perception that people were pushed out of ED sooner than they should have, and maybe then shifting the the, the risk uh, of these behaviours to to other clinical areas. Um, yeah, so so that's what we wanted to see. We wanted to really establish whether this was just a perception, uh, and or whether it was um, we could we could show a relationship between uh, the the target, the implementation of the target, and then the the increase in 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 violence in the unit in the in the ICU. So, Albertina, tell us about the study that you did and the results that you obtained from it. Um, so it was a retrospective study, uh, specifically looking over a 24-month period. So I looked at pre-NEAT, a 12-month period, and then post-implementation of the NEAT. Um, and what I found from that was that the female nursing staff um, in particular were the most at risk of occupational violence but specifically female registered nurses were most at risk. And this changed if you became a critical care registered nurse or a clinical nurse specialist, where then the most at risk um, were males. So it would be interesting to see whether this um, is similar across other ICUs as well. Why do you think that might be? Is there a reason for that, um, that seeming gendered disparity? Yeah, I, mean, we, I think we we discussed a little bit about potential pattern of gendered allocation, but it's not something that we could we could show that in our study. You know, knowing that if a patient is that is at risk of being violent, maybe they were allocated differently. Mm-hmm. But it's obviously something that we didn't set out to to look at that, so it's not something that we can tell from the results of the study. Uh, but that's, I think, that's a good avenue for for further research, looking at whether there is gendered allocation pattern. There's definitely this kind of pattern in uh, psych, in mental health uh, settings, and that's been studied. But uh, in ICU, it's not something that has been looked at. What do we know about the patients who are involved here? Is there anything that can be used as a predictor that they may be uh, at risk of violent types of behaviour? Um, well, I'd love to have a pro forma where I could say that we could identify patients more at risk. That would be an interesting study in itself as well. But um, what we found that the patients um, in in our unit most likely to cause these types of behaviours were uh, patients that had drug overdoses, uh, isolated head injuries, or following a cardiac arrest. Um, but some of these patients... Um, you know, also had previous history of violent behaviour as well, which was interesting to find. So what are the implications from the work that you've done and where would you like to see things go from here? Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, uh, I'll let Albertina talk a little bit more about that, but I think one of the big implications was the, um, you know, this under-reporting. It's, and how you can can improve uh, reporting is very difficult. Um, I know that there have been lately some some campaign trying to sensibilise people and to to make sure that you know any incident of violence was reported. But until you know 
it's it's very difficult to actually ascertain the impact of this violence um, if you don't have the reporting to to look at it. Um, so we can say that we need to do more research into into that and 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 try to improve uh, training and all those things. But if you if you don't have the reporting, it's going to be very difficult to actually see if it has an impact or not. Uh, I mean, yes, definitely training of staff to, to be better equipped to deal with this and to, rather than dealing with the code grey, black, trying to prevent them and de-escalation, and I don't know that many nurses are, are receive training in, in, in ICU on de-escalation. It's something that we, other for nurses, I'm only talking about nursing staff here, and it's something that we 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 do in mental health setting, but we don't do so well in general settings. Um, no, I think Stefan's covered most of it, but it would be great to see um, a multi-centre study um, to see whether other ICUs across Australia are facing the same issues. But Stefan Albertina, thank you very much. Congratulations on uh, the publication of your paper. It's a, a, a great paper and an important step on our journey to understanding this issue better. Uh, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more great episodes just like this, visit our website at osla.force.com.